Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of New England Sports Legends, a very exciting one for yours truly, a very uh, strong connection with the Boston Marathon, having uh, covered it for over a quarter of a century on, on television. Uh, Greg Meyer is alongside. Greg uh, is from Michigan, but he earned it all in 1983 when he was the last American to win the Boston Marathon. Now, I'll, I'll ask you, because we, we've talked uh, since 1983, but does that get annoying to hear that you're the last American to win the Boston Marathon as far as an introduction, or is that okay with you? Um, no, it's not okay. I, I would love to see somebody else step up and, and win. In fact, somebody gave me a new way to term it. I'm the most recent. When people say last, it's like it's never going to happen again. Well, you know what? I'm going to start it's saying, <laughs> well, I know, but, uh, you know, let's hope, you know, let's yeah. hope in some ways. But yeah, it's... It's, we're more than overdue. I, I, I would love nothing better than to see an American man or woman win this thing. Okay, since you have been the most recent American uh, to win the Boston Marathon, why did it end with you? Why did it stop there? I don't know exactly. I think a lot of things came into play. It, it, there was the high water mark, I think, was right around our time. You had Bill Rogers, Alberto Salazar, myself, and a few other, Dick Beardsley. Um, you know, and when you look at 83, we had, what, four guys that were at 210 or better, and how many more, and it's fallen off. We have a lot of talent. We have talent here. You've got, you know, Ryan Hall. You've got Meb. You've got um, Dathan Ritzenheim. But they haven't been able to put it together to win yet. Um, and then the other thing that changed was the influx of the Africans. Uh, you know, they, they were here when we were running, but not in the same numbers and it's really taken off, they moved from the track to the roads. So you're not racing one or two Kenyans, you're racing 15 or 20. So the odds get stacked against you. Uh, so you're saying that um, they emerged as the Americans were kind of going downhill and some, somewhere no. they passed. I think what happened- and Downhill's probably not a good way of putting it. <laughs> On this course, it's accurate though. It no, it, 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 people don't it, realize it, this is a downhill course. It's a downhill course that rips your legs apart. We'll talk about that. But, but I think what happened, too, with the Americans is there was a change in the business of running in the, in, the eight, in the middle 80s where money came into the sport. People started running for contracts. You stopped training with people. I moved to Boston to train with Bill Rogers and the Greater Boston Track Club. They were the best club in the world. My coach sent me, he said, go find out what they're doing because they're doing it better than anybody else. So you move to get better and you train with the group. When the contracts started coming in, that broke up. You couldn't train with somebody. Well, they're with another shoe company. You can't train with them. I mean, it really got, um, dis <coughs> I can't use the word, but competitive for contracts. And I think it really hurt the Americans to where in the last Oh, probably 10 years, it's started to go back the other way. You're seeing training groups form again, whether it's in Oregon, Mammoth Lakes, Minnesota. You know, there's different pockets. Even the BAA now is going to create that elite running group and bring people here. So bringing that talent back together again to train, I think is going to really help. Are you saying the money was a blessing or a curse? It was both. It really was both. Um, I think for a period of time, we struggled. There was always, at some of the bigger races, there would be appearance fees under the table. 
we changed all that in the early 80s. Most of the guys running today don't realize that people like Bill Rogers, myself, Joni, we fought to get money put into our sport. It's what led to guys like Larry Bird and everybody playing in the Olympics. It opened the sport up. It opened up the whole amateur thing. was really blown away. But when money came in, road running is not organized. You know, there's no circuit here. You know, just because somebody runs Boston doesn't mean they're going to run Chicago or New York. You don't build a fan base. You don't build that interest. It's interchangeable parts. So, and the athletes themselves, they're all a, sort of a tub on their own bottom. They can go wherever they want, do what they, so there's no plan for the sport to move ahead. And then on the training side of it, when you stop training with one another, you can't get as much done. And uh, literally, I remember people writing reports to their shoe company saying, so-and-so is at a party, it's like they're or so-and-so's father is wearing the, it's, it got petty. It got very petty in the 80s and early 90s. And I really think it set us back. Friends stopped training together. And that was a huge mistake for our sport. The Kenyans train together. Right. right. <laughs> you go over there. There's 20, 30 guys. They have that national. It's almost like <coughs> a PGA for running. You don't have that parent group, right? Exactly. You don't have the. You don't. We don't have the infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. We, well, we, it's such an individual sport. It's like. <laughs> it is, but it isn't. You, you know, it, it's. It, you know, you, you. I was listening to, to to Bubba Watson talk. He's my team. You know, he's got a coach. He's got support staff. He's got. Runners. So I'm talking to Greg Meyer's team. <laughs> well, actually, when I was running, we did have the team. We had Bill Squires, the coach. Yeah. You know, we had um, Bob Sebi. We had the masseuse you'd go to. You know, you had a, an, an infrastructure here because of the Greater Boston Track Club. But Boston was unique in that this city embraced running because of the marathon. We were treated like athletes here. You go somewhere else, yeah, just a jogger. You know, but in Boston, I mean, I remember running with Billy down the street, and guys would be coming up out of the manhole coverage going, kick their ass, Billy. You know, I mean, people knew what running was about here because of the marathon. Talking to Greg Meyer, the most recent American male to win the Boston Marathon, that was in 1983. Uh, I remember it vividly, but that was, those were the end of the, of the, the golden era for American marathoners. Uh, whether they come back or not is problematical. The question is, you, you brought it up, this course uh, is basically downhill. And we, almost, we say that every year. People don't believe us because one of the most famous stretches is uphill. But it's, it, from start to finish, it's, it's a it's, drop. Yeah. What, what's unique about this course, and, and when, when you talk to people about marathoning, you always have to manage the distance. But in this race, you manage the distance and the course because of the downhill and the uphill components. The downhill, especially in the first 15, 16 miles of the race, there's some steep downhill. It rips your thighs apart. It's an eccentric muscle contraction. You know, it's your muscles are stretched out and then they're asked to absorb all of that pounding. So by the time you get to the hills, there's nothing left in your thighs. The other thing that happens is by the time you get to the hills, which is about the two hour mark for <coughs> many people or more, 
your body runs out of glycogen. So you've got the double whammy of your legs have been beat up and now you've just run out of energy. That's the wall, right? That's the wall. The wall happens to come where that stupid hill is and it hurts. <laughs> uh, if you Actually have, there are four hills, well, well no. There's four hills, everybody knows heartbreak, primarily because so many races are won and lost on that hill. Um, but you're right, the first hill is coming up over 128. You know, I always felt if you made it up the Brayburn Hill at 18, right up, you turned at the firehouse. That hill to me was the hardest hill. If you got to the top of that one feeling good, you're probably going to be okay. Do you rerun that race in your mind? There's certain races that are like gold, gold standard. Yeah, you you can play back segments of it the whole way. Boston obviously was very important. That was for me. 30 years ago. It was 30 years ago. Most memories have gone, but not that one. <laughs> yeah. um, no, so I, I remember just about little things, little things you wouldn't think about, but like at seven miles, there were two dogs on each side of the course. And this was before they had crowd control. And the Doberman on one side of the course got loose, and the guy on the other side had a, um, a German Shepherd. Wow. And I remember, <laughs> and, and race car drivers have told me they're sensitive. I remember the guy with the same, just, or the go, uh, just dropped the leash so the dog would have a fair fight. And I remember the entire pack just swinging away. And didn't stop, but we're going to go around this, you know? It just little yeah. things, little things that like that. Doesn't seem like a little thing. Well, it's not a little, but you know, you're running along and it's like you're watching two dogs fight, you know? <laughs> it's like <laughs> in, in the middle of the course. Yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, just. I suppose it was a point in the race when you knew if you just kept it together, yeah, you owned it. I was talking to somebody recently about this, and <clears throat> I was running well going into Boston. Uh, I'd won Chicago before. I had a great winter of racing, training. Everything went right. Um, I was the perceived favorite going in, and I used that to my advantage in, in some ways. <laughs> but in all of my training, and I lived a mile off the course. I lived in Wellesley. I mean, every day I was on this course, I knew this course. In all of my training, you know, especially the last three to four months leading up to the race on the course, I never saw anybody ahead of me when I got to 20 miles. When you visualize things, you know, when I got to the top of heartbreak, I just didn't imagine somebody being ahead of me. And I, and, and I can't explain it, but that was the process. And I remember breaking Benji between this, you know, just before Heartbreak Hill, getting to the top, and it was like, I knew it was over. You know, it was like, okay, I, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is what you trained for. This is, this is how you saw it playing out in your mind over and over again. So the only thing that messed me up, though, is the media. <laughs> With three miles to go, I was still on world record pace, but I was looking back. And if you remember in the old days, the press truck would go through. Absolutely. And it was like going through a rat going through a snake. It would open up, and then the crowd would close back in to look to see who was coming. Well, I'm a nervous guy. I'm always looking back to see who's coming. And I keep looking back, and with three miles to go, somebody on the press truck yelled to me, relax, there's nobody coming. I relaxed, lost 20 seconds a mile over the last three miles. But the funny part, or the interesting part, and we talk about this now versus the Americans, when Bill Squires was coaching us, we never talked about how fast you were gonna run. 
you talked about how you were gonna win on this course. What did you need to do on this course to beat those other guys? Bill Rogers was the master at this course. He knew how to manipulate it. He knew how to hurt people here. Um, we never talked about time, so time didn't matter. It was only about if he got the win. You said he knew how to hurt people. Uh, in talking to a number of marathoners, world-class athletes, if there ever were world-class athletes, I mean, I thought Joni Benoit was one of the greatest athletes I've ever Toughest covered. Toughest athlete you ever met. Ever covered here oh. in Boston. For sure. Absolutely. She's mean. Yeah, that. that and I love her, but she's mean. The gun goes but, off, she's mean. Yeah, that, that probably was one of the more endearing qualities <laughs> of her. But how many, how many of these things did you have in you uh, in a year uh, competitively? I mean, you're not training, but you know, you're at Chicago, Boston. Which, how many did you have in you? Actually, the marathon was the kiss of death for me. Again, it, almost like the money, it was the good and the bad. I ran a couple of good marathons, but I wasn't a marathoner. I was 150 pounds. Bill Rogers, 128. The Kenyans average about 118 pounds. Totally different on your body. So when I moved up to the marathon. So you were a Buick, not a Porsche. But exactly. <laughs> um, dads, I was probably an F-150 going down the road <laughs> compared to some of these guys. But um, the marathon really ruined me. In, in many ways in terms of um, the injury cycle. My body couldn't tolerate what you needed to do to run that fast over that distance. The fact that I ran a couple, if I would have run one every two years, I'd have been okay. But the kiss of death is, if you're trying to feed a family and the money is in the marathon, you get done with one, you start training for the next. Um, most guys in our era, they felt if you got two to two and a half years out of the marathon, you were doing well. Now they're a little bit more structured. A lot of the guys that you'll see at Boston, you won't see them again, you know? They'll disappear for months to let themselves go, you know, recharge. The economics are different now than back then, you know? I got a bowl of stew and, 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 a, and a bonus from the shoe company <laughs> when I won. Um, nowadays, big time. it's big time, and thank goodness for that. I, I think it's improved. It's brought more awareness to the sport, you know? It's, Look how fast they're running. How much awareness? I mean, as a world-class athlete, uh, most other world-class athletes are instantly recognized. I mean, if you walk down the street with Muhammad Ali, they're not going to say, "Who's that guy with Greg Meyer?" Uh, <laughs> no, it's you know, it's it's different. We're not on TV like other sports. And we we had a conversation last night around the, the dinner table with Larry Rawson. Oh, yeah. And he was talking about the economics of it. And it's like, you know, the NBA can drop a billion dollars. They're going to do promos to promote the NBA. Well, our sport doesn't have that. We may get on TV, but there's nobody that's going to spend a lot of money to promote it. It's going to be that niche sport. You know, if you have an interest, you'll watch it. In Europe, it's different. They treat it a little bit differently than here. But I'll also say that in the city of Boston, Bill Rogers walks down the street. They know Bill Rogers. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Joe Benoit Samuelson, they know Joe Benoit Samuelson. Fair. Now, I'm not here. I didn't win the thing four times, you know? It makes a difference, you know? But it's Boston Billy, right. you know? There's a difference there. Right. Um, so I think in many ways he is recognized here. Um, Plus both of you, I mean, you guys hit the, hit the road literally when television was coming up and, and actually doing minute-by-minute minute coverage. So it was all 
to your advantage. Well, you were on every every station in Boston covered the race. Right. I mean, live every station. I know, right? That was incredible. Incredible. Uh, it's like so. To have been running here during that era, we were the good old days. We really were. No, I understand that. I you believe know? me, I lived in the good old days. Yeah, I understand what that was yeah. all about. Yeah, and 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 I, we talk about that as as the retired group. Yeah. You know, that we lived in the good old days. We actually got to help create a sport. You know, True. good or bad. True. We got to help create a sport. True. I, I can't leave you without asking you about the uh, events of of last year, and I think if you. First of all, if you run, ever have run Boston, there's a piece of this race that you think you own. Absolutely. If you've ever won Boston, I can't <coughs> imagine what you think you own, but it, it's kind of like a member of the family. Mm -hmm. I just would ask you, it, did, did you feel as violated as most people did uh, after that tragedy last year? How, well, how did you feel? It was, it's still hard to put into words. I had run, because last year was my 30th anniversary, I ran with two of my boys. Mm -hmm. um, my oh, daughter okay. and my significant other were at the finish line working the entire day. We finished, walked away, got our medal, we're taking pictures when it happened. And it's like the what ifs. My son struggled the last three or four miles Actually, last seven or eight miles, he didn't train well enough. But he refused to walk the last mile. Had we been walking the last mile, we might have been right there. Yeah. But he wouldn't stop running. So we got through a little bit earlier. When it was all said and done, and we got together as a family, it was very emotional. I mean, my kids grew up around the marathon. They, you know, It's part of our family. Right. But it's part of the New England family. It's part of the running community. And yeah, you felt violated, but in the aftermath of that, you saw how people rallied immediately, you know? Because I remember standing in the plaza right there, when the, and you'd see the runners going one way and others running to it. And it, amazing what they did. It, but then after the event <coughs> happened, the days, the months, when you thought, and I'm involved with some other races, everybody thought, your numbers are gonna go down, people are gonna be afraid to go to races. Total opposite, numbers went up. No one's taking this sport away from us. Nobody's gonna do this to us. Um, very emotional on both sides. Um, and, and I remember saying, it's, we don't own the race, but we certainly feel possessive of it. Um, I know Billy, Joni, and I, Andy Burfoot, we all talked immediately afterwards. And when we s sat in the lobby of the hotel, just hours afterwards, we all looked at each other and said, we're coming back next year. You know, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna be how this finishes. Um, you know, it's, we're stronger than that. The race is stronger than that. You know, there's crazy people out there. We overcome those things. 36,000, uh, the most other than the 100th. Uh, there'll be a big novice factor, of course, and I think it depends. I think most of the medical, medical people are worried about the so-called novice factor. Like when you say your son wasn't totally trained, these are people that are not gonna be totally trained. But you know what, be that as it may, everybody's got a story. Most of the people, though, that are here have trained. Um, 
even though there's 36, they turn away so many people every year that are qualified. So the charity element is big, but they're also letting in all of those people who didn't finish last year. And that was an immediate decision. If you didn't finish last year, you have a number this year. So what was that, another 6,000 people right off the bat? Mm-hmm. Um, so they've let in another three, but it's really, uh, I don't worry about those people. These aren't people that have decided within the last two or three weeks they're gonna run. <laughs> um, there are those, you know, there are those. Uh, you know, I, I'm involved with the John Hancock Employee Program. They have about 400 employees running this year. Some from last year who couldn't finish and then the others as part of their charity program. They've all been training since last fall. They, I mean, it's so I'm confident that most of the people that are out there, even if they're running for a charity, have done their work, you know? Um, they don't want to embarrass themselves. You know, at the end of the day, if you announce a, you have a goal, I'm gonna run the Boston Marathon, and you ask for a pledge, you don't want to embarrass yourself by not finishing, you're gonna do the work, you know? That's the, the unique thing about our sport is the charity aspect is really driving up the numbers. He's from Michigan, by the way, and a big Tigers fan. And a Red Sox fan, come on. That's why we're across the street (laughs) at the Twins Souvenir Store. Uh, We'll be talking to the founder uh, for another show, but. I told told you last year in the playoffs, people asked me, who are you cheering for? No, 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 I said, it's a win-win for me, because no matter who wins, Red Sox or Tigers, I'm a happy guy. It's all good, it's all good. Yeah. You're a great spokesperson for the sport uh, you represent, a great champion, and uh, some of my fondest memories have been covering you both on the course and off of it. So thanks for all that you meant to this race and to all the, everything you meant to Boston. Well, thank you for everything you've done for the race and for the runners. I just show up. And again, nah, 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 nah. You know, I have people <laughs> that know a lot more than I do sitting next to me. Greg Meyer. Thank you, Bob. Legends Boston has been a presentation of Unanchored Media, a Burke Advertising LLC company. Executive producer, Jim Burke. Show updates and information can be found at legendsboston.com.